0: Welcome to the Smart Talk Series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk Series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in November of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Michael Maddy. Michael Maddy is the founder of Doylestown Wealth Management, a financial planning and wealth management firm. Before joining the Marine Corps, Mr. Maddy earned a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Delaware. After graduating, he began to work in the finance industry for a number of years. Eventually, Michael wrote his own book titled Global Addiction to Kiwi, the most important topic affecting your retirement, a guide. This book is a detailed exploration of the history of quantitative easing and its effects on financial markets. A lover of everything investing, Mr. Matty has spent a lifetime helping others save for their retirement and understand financial markets. Together, we discuss monetary policy under Alan Greenspan, his critique of the Federal Reserve, and why deficit spending may not be such a bad thing after all. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
1: Michael, we're going to introduce you in another setting where we film that separately. But for everyone, uh, Michael Maddie, who's an investment advisor, and uh, why we chose Michael to interview is uh, we have one person in common in all of this is uh, Richard Duncan. For those people who are not familiar with Richard Duncan, Richard Duncan is kind of a a favorite of a number of us people, Michael and myself who's done extensive work on financial markets modeling and has a wonderful service keeping everybody up to date. So I think we've, it's fair to say we both have, have uh, drunk the Michael, uh, the Richard Duncan Kool-Aid for, for background information. Well, Michael's a, an investment advisor who came of age, I guess, at the tail end of what we would call traditional investing, you know, price-earnings ratios, uh, Earnings of a company, uh, capital expenditure of a company, the things that I, I was trained in also. And the world's kind of changed, and it's a huge change. And Michael has written a book about it. I think he, he's captured the zeitgeist of this change quite well. That's why we wanted to discuss this with him. What it ultimately means for investing, we're going to discuss here today, but we probably won't come up with a with a definite answer as to what the future brings us. But I think we'll sh- throw light on what's going on uh, uh, today. But Michael, why don't you discuss what caused you to transform your investment banking practice in in really a dramatic way, a, a real mind shift that you had to go through. And I think everybody who's been in the market has to go through this. I don't, I don't know if everybody has gone through it, but why don't you discuss your, your uh, vision and how you saw the change because you actually documented uh, the process and very few people have done that today. So
2: go ahead. Uh, thank you, Andy. Um, yes, it was quite uh, transformational. Um, I started in the business, uh, I was hired in 1991, which, gosh, what a phenomenal time. I left the Marine Corps, I was a captain and pilot in the Marine Corps was hired by a firm in 1991, and for 10 years, it was just an incredible time to be an investor, to be uh, an investment advisor, and um, I was quite fortunate, enjoyed some wonderful relationships during the 90s. Yes, I, we had a, a bit of a, a, a speed bump, if you will, if you want to compare a speed bump in 2000, 2003 to what happened later in 2008 and 2009, got through that all right, then 2008 and 9 arrived, and you know I'd be remiss to say that that was quite a, um, uh, a, a shock to many investment advisors that were kind of caught, caught un, unaware, uh, and um, uh, some of us were uh, reactive uh, in many respects during the 0809 downturn, um, and you do your best to try to uh you know uh, uh, uh consult with clients to, to steady their hand and after you start coming out of the 0809 uh great recession i wasn't satisfied with um thinking gosh we're beyond that like i was beyond the uh 2000 2001 2002 downturn there was something more something more vicious if you will with that downturn and I wanted to explore the underpinning of that, which obviously led me to the Fed and the Fed's influence. Now, for many years, we all knew the, the mantra, don't fight the Fed. but It was more than just don't fight the Fed this time. And if our conversation allows you, will you'll learn that I am not a big fan of the, the Federal Reserve. That. Yes, it was necessary, in my opinion, and I write this in the book, it was necessary for them to step in with QE1, but I feel that they extended the free and easy money well beyond the point of a necessity. And um, in full disclosure, I put in my book that um, hindsight's always twenty twenty, mm-hmm. so it's easy to, to, uh, to scrutinize the Federal <clears throat> Reserve well after the fact. But the fact remains that even to this day, um, there's some concerns with that. So um, to answer your question, yes, 0809 was a pivotal pivotal yeah. time for me as an advisor, and it's one that you know has developed lifelong relationships with clients. And I want to make sure that we are advising them appro- appropriately for what may come okay. well, me, uh, in
1: the future. Yeah, let me interject here. I mean, we'll talk about we'll talk about the world. Before two thousand and eight, in your opinion, uh, were the economic policies, the the policy of the country, uh, such that it led to this inevitability? In other words, we had, you know, the speculation, the real estate speculation, the internet boom. Uh, We had the Greenspan put, where basically he, he and he, he said to everybody, "Look, I'll cover you on the downside." uh, let it roll or let it rock on the upside. Do you have any views on why he did that, or why that occurred before we get back to 2008 when things just fell off the, the ledge? I mean, uh, I mean, was this inherent in the US economy that he had to do this? Was there something structurally changing in the US economy, let's say in the preceding 20 years, that ultimately led to the inevitability of this, uh, of this change? Just for uh, from my point of view, so you know <clears throat> where I stand. I I grew up in the old manufacturing economy of uh, of the United States, and uh, in fact, I was the CEO of an industrial company back in the day of you know American dominance, no outsourcing, uh, high wages, and of course, from, from my perspective, I was I was that up until 1994. Uh, the world changed back then in terms of we started to outsource. We started to bring cheap labor online through through uh, China. The communist world fell in the 80s, releasing more cheap labor. American companies took advantage of that and in effect uh, started shedding jobs here for and picking up jobs in China and low-wage areas, uh, bringing the goods in, financing those, those goods by credit because we were losing workers. And so, in a way, there was a buildup that was foreshadowed that ended in 2008. It was a tremendous credit buildup, job loss, and a huge export-import deficit arising that had to be financed by by somebody, ultimately the Japanese and the Chinese did. So that if you look back at that era, you could see the signs uh, growing that culminated in, in a 2008. We just ran out of credit gas, it seems, in at two, two, at 2008. The question is, why did we engage in this and, and in effect create the conditions that caused the investment uh, community to have to really change their way of thinking? There, there was no foreshadowing in the investment community at all, it basically said the prices are up. We're, we're kind of technical traders, you know. We we we'll look at the market. If the market is moving up, whoa, that's okay. We're not we're not examining really a long-term change in fundamentals. And as an investment advisor, you know, I wanted to get your sense of how you looked at the preceding period, if you did, and and how you confronted the 2008. If you want to elaborate on uh, that. Oh, absolutely,
2: and and uh, gosh, as you're as you're talking, Andy, there's uh, a, a couple of themes coming through my my thoughts. Uh, one, the world is flat. We'll talk about that as mm-hmm. well. Um, uh, the the shrinking of the middle class, which I touch upon in my mm-hmm. book, which I think is, um, is is very sad and needs to be focused on. Um, but I'll go back to. As I mentioned, I was hired in 1991, Mm I really got into practice in 1992. And the demographics, I think, this this baby boomer um, uh, uh, demographics was um, uh, very prevalent during that time. And it it just seemed as though uh, we were coming off of um, very high inflation. Yields on interest rates were coming down. Mm -hmm. And it, it set up this perfect storm, if you will, of wonderful investment environment through the 90s, an accommodative fed, and uh, that unleashed the animal spirits uh, during the 90s, and it took us, swept us all into this new technology of the internet that we all remember, the Y2K uh, uh, craze, and uh, gosh, uh, you know, we're approaching the end of the, of the 1990s. And if you didn't buy Qualcomm today, my goodness, you're going to buy it next week for $5 higher. So you better buy it today. That kind of mentality where, darn the fundamentals, you're going to buy vertical net and all these other uh, uh, dot-com stocks. And that that took us right into the Y2K and the subsequent downturn. Um, And yes, we did come out, out of that, largely due to... Alan Greenspan, uh, the maestro, the one that had his finger on the pulse, who who could not be challenged, um, and boy, the, at that time the Fed was very much a black box. If you would have interviewed people 10, 15 years ago and asked them, well, what what department of the government is is, is the the Fed in? The legislative, judicial, executive? They'd be scratching their heads trying to think, and the answer is no. They are they were private entity they're a private cartel you know of bankers created by bankers over a century ago and it's it's that it's the fed put the money that was trickling in at that time into the economy from the fed um uh that that led to uh, the, uh, the the recovery if you will and of course uh, the the uh, uh, we we enhance a lot of spending and another thing coming to mind is we're allowed to do this. And as Richard Duncan, uh, Atlee points out many times, back in 68 and 71, we went off the gold standard. Yeah. Gave the Fed the ability to create whatever amount of money they wanted to, to support the economy. They did so prior to 2000. They, they, they put a several, I say, I think it was $60 billion into banks around the country to, um, uh fiscal cash, in case there was an ATM issue at the Y2K. But then during the, the, the tragic disaster of 9-11, they lowered interest rates, uh, three-quarter basis points, and they um, stimulated at that time quite a bit, both monetary and fiscal policy. And that kind of helped uh, jumpstart the economies that took us into uh, 2008, 2009. And, and that issue was a culmination of many factors led by i think alan greenspan and, and his uh, his policies
1: okay so so if we we start at 2008 we have a situation where uh the middle class and the lower classes do not have enough purchasing power to uh to pay their bills and certainly not engage in real estate speculation uh, of, of the magnitude that occurred back then with the uh with the with the funny mortgages and uh, the uh, the banks uh, basically issuing paper that it was of low quality, so things explode. The Fed has to come in, and um, and now they're kind of in for good. And to keep the economy going, they literally have to pump four trillion dollars into the economy from 2008 until today, and they do it by buying high quality paper or low quality paper either from banks sometimes industrial companies or sometimes uh, in buying and, f- and, and funding government debt and also engaging in, uh, in in trying to manipulate long-term and short-term interest rates and they don't seem to be able to stop that and it, it it's becoming and I think you demonstrate it's so powerful and so awesome this money that the stock market essentially is being driven by it it's the the market is almost disconnected from the earnings of its own corporations because the earnings of their own corporations are primarily deriving from the fact that they got access to this money and they can either invest it overseas or they can trade in assets, but they don't seem to be finding investment opportunities in the United States per se. Now, this is a real sea change from what you would have confronted as an investment advisor in the 90s and that I had confronted in the 70s and 80s and 90s about, you know, earnings Drive the stock market. Interest rate affects interest rates affect the stock market. If the interest rates go up, the market's down, and vice versa. Now we have zero interest rates. Can't put them up because you put them up, uh, bonds collapse. So the Fed's policy Libra is gone. There, it has to continue issuing money. What do you tell your clients in the face of this? There's no real common sense way you can explain to your clients about price earnings ratio. The quality of the companies, because you, as yourself, have demonstrated, the market's dancing to a quantitative easing and money push uh, uh, drive much more than they are on earnings. So, how do you, from the old days, you could say, look, read Graham and Dodd, the uh, the, the 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 Warren Buffett Bible on investing, and and uh, buy a company that that has a niche. Or has a has a has a monopoly and has good cash flow and reasonable prospects. And if you had a portfolio of those stocks, you'd you'd gain eight or nine percent a year. Now, what do you tell your clients in the face of what you know, what you and I both know from Richard Duncan's work about this massive credit blow up all over the world. Everyone seems to be addicted to it. Nobody seems to know how to get off it. And I'm I come to you as a with, a, with some money I want to invest in a, for the future. What do you tell me and how do you convince me? Gosh, uh, the,
2: the first thing that comes to mind is uh, adhering to conservative financial strategies. Um, there, there are clients that want to be engaged and try to understand the markets yeah. and that will be receptive to a discussion of how the Fed has influenced the markets and then there are others that have little interest. They say, gosh, Michael, you go ahead and uh, uh, you, you know my investment goals, invest as, as, as appropriate. And those are tough. I, I, I wrote the book in a, in a, I think, as a, a quantitative easing 101. It's yes, a kind yes. of, a, of a very basic explanatory fashion um, to to... to encourage uh, uh, Investors especially those in or approaching retirement mm-hmm. to take a monocle of interest in This entity called the Federal Reserve because it is the proverbial, you know 800-pound oh, gorilla yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. room and it has a significant effect on their financial future mm. um, a- a- As you're speaking, um, I'm thinking about um, uh the effects of the fed stock buybacks um, uh, 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 mm. were helping to drive a, a lot of the, the the growth of the stock yes, market yes. and yet investors say oh look the stock market keeps going up yes. it goes up 10 percent a year does it not and you go why is it going up yes you know 40 years ago i can explain why there was yes, a yeah, gentle yes. nudge higher
1: it's in, a real problem stocks. for you today right
2: oh but it, it certainly is it certainly is but um, so the person that, that comes to me and says, gosh, I just retired. Here, is, here are my assets. The first thing is, is me as a student of quantitative easing of the Fed. I know that if they're not there to support, and I'm going to say the Fed globally because we have Mario Draghi in the ECB. We've mm-hmm. got uh, Kuroda uh, Abe out in, in Japan. You know, China has a big influence, obviously. Um, yeah. They they had their hiccup back in August of uh, 2015. And we saw when they tried to uh, devalue their currency, how we went into a tailspin. Mm. So there are a lot of these global factors that can, on a dime, can change the dynamics of the markets in a matter of weeks. Uh, so uh, you don't want to hide. You're not going to hide. There's no longer uh, the... Five, six, seven percent bond ladders, right. or a four percent money market available. So, you you don't want to have that money stagnate. So it is
1: very much a more difficult conversation. Um, well, let me let me just interject here sure. on one thing you said on the bond. Let's just talk about the bond market. I would argue, and I think you would argue also, with interest rates so low, the bond prices are very high. How could you ever instruct anyone to buy bonds today? Uh, Because if something goes wrong with, you know, with monetary policy, they do back up in the QE. They do raise interest rates. You're going to get a decimation in the bond portfolio. So would you agree with that? Absolutely.
2: However, I do
1: invest in bond
2: instruments, inclined portfolios, Um, instruments, ETFs. Maybe some mutual funds, but to buy in individual bonds, to buy that bond ladder, I I agree. I don't have the the, the ability to have a nimble reaction.
1: Yeah, I'd say
2: yes. And so I, I do invest in fixed income, uh, in a number of fixed income. There's some that uh, can be levered and uh, Build America bonds and different ETFs uh, and, and very cost-effective ways of doing that to get that that. A yield and you can get a three four five percent dividend yield from some of these investments but you need to be nimble it's not i'm going to buy you this this investment and we'll look at it in several years because mm. you know on, on a dime that the bernanke taper tantrum back in um uh in, in, in 13 that sent yields uh, racing uh, in just a matter of uh, of weeks and it, it had a profound effect on uh, bond portfolios
1: but essentially you're you're forced to bring your clients into uh either the stock market itself or I noticed that you uh, uh, you buy you 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 buy a lot of uh, like insurance site plans f- fixed annuities and things of that nature and maybe you want to elaborate on the annuity end of uh, your uh, portfolio recommendations as and and as to why you've gone to that uh, that end of the market well absolutely that's a, that's a great point and I wouldn't say that it's a lot
2: I, I uh it's it's a portion of a okay. well-balanced portfolio i am if i want to invest in the annuities and get the the protection that an insurance carrier such as an allianz can right. provide for that 100 percent downside protection with a modest upside of say three four five percent hmm. I'm very cognizant of the fees, and uh, I, I don't mean be paying much more than that one percent of fee okay. in an annuity in order to to, to get that type of um, that type okay. of protection and, and income. And I'm, I won't, uh, you know, that's just a a portion of a portfolio. But there are other ways of structuring investments to provide you with some of that downside. And I must tell you, Andy, that the the investment firms. Are providing more and more of these type of investments because mm-hmm. they see that we're in this malaise and that people do the baby boomers do want the asset protection, but the potential for growth right. and there's more
1: opportunities out there, but you have to be very fee conscious. Okay, all right. If we so you got kind of forced into the market in general and uh, to make your basic allocations. And how do you feel about that? You you know. You know, if we both, though, we read Richard Duncan, we know that the slightest downturn in credit uh, and, uh, you know, all hell starts to break loose. And therefore, the the Fed is not going to allow that to happen. But they can't do that forever, can they? My question to you. Can they do it forever? And if they can well, why not just have them print money forever for us and <laughs> we don't even bother to work? I mean, uh-huh. uh, this is a great... Uh, This is a a mechanism that seems to be a perpetual motion machine. Now, we know from elementary physics that we can't have a perpetual motion machine. So where is the flaw? Where is the danger? Where would you be sitting, taking all your clients, putting them in the stock market? Because it's almost a default position here. You haven't really got many other places to go, maybe real estate. We could discuss real estate as a separate asset class at at least you can get rents out of. I happen to prefer that myself. But uh, uh, you know, you're sitting in a sort of Democles. You you know the deal. You know you know the environment. You're 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 reading Richard Duncan's reports on credit creation. This is we are here. Uh, you've got your clients. You can only go so so far on fixed fixed instruments because any any increase in in, in, in uh, political increase where they they. they build infrastructure let's say and they put a real demand on the market going to raise the interest rates going to collapse your bond prices and you don't know if they do that where the where the juice in the equity market's going to be so how how can you make a living and sleep nights is my question to you
2: excellent question and i i think uh uh those of us that believe that way will gravitate towards the high quality, large company stocks that pay a okay. dividend, which okay. are approaching very, very high valuations. And mm. even the utilities and the telecoms that provide mm-hmm. those uh, uh, those uh, dividends are their valuations are quite stretched.
1: The New York Times yeah. validated your point, I think, today. Yeah, that's what everyone was looking at that particular <laughs> group of uh, equities. Yes, yeah, so healthcare, is, healthcare is, uh,
2: is attractive. You're mm. looking at a Johnson & Johnson because of the aging baby boomers and need for healthcare. But then you've got biotech in there, which is going to give you a, a rough ride right, and, right. Uh, and no dividends. Um, I like consumer staples, uh, the Procter & Gamble's yeah. a, of the world. Um, however, I'll go back to your comment about the, the money, because as you're talking, I immediately start thinking about the difference between monetary policy and fiscal, fiscal policy, policy. Okay. and I would definitely say that the monetary policy is having a diminished
1: effect, which right. takes us to the
2: fiscal policy. To your book, your by question, the way, your
1: book points out the marginal, the, the increasing marginal effects of uh, of quantitative easing quite well, which means that you know we're approaching a a watershed here from an investment point of view. If we go to a fiscal policy, and it seems that we're going to have to if, if we start investing in infrastructure, uh, something that we need to do to give jobs for, the, for lots of people, and because we have an aging inf- infrastructure, that would probably be financed by fiscal policy. If that's financed by fiscal policy, it will draw lots of people in the workforce quickly. You may have bottlenecks, you may have wage inflation, and if you have wage inflation, Uh, you will cause interest rates to spike upwards, and if we cause interest rates to spike upwards, all hell will break loose in your fixed income portfolio. So your take on a fiscal approach as opposed to mine or maybe in sync with mine?
2: I would say not so fast (laughs) because, gosh, I, I think a fiscal approach, which I fully embrace, And I believe is absolutely necessary because we talked about a monetary policy, which is having a diminishing marginal effect and usefulness. But a fiscal policy requires politicians in Washington to to work together. And as you and I probably both agree, it's very dysfunctional. Mm. I I still read about uh, some politicians that it feels that we have to go back to a gold standard. And I'm thinking... Where are they getting their economic advice Mm -hmm. Uh, and they need to be we need to be fiscally prudent while we may want to be fiscally prudent at some point. Our economy cannot stand us Mm -hmm. uh, to be fiscally prudent and I believe we do need to spend trillions of dollars. Um, but that is going to take a lot of cooperation and coordination with politicians on both sides of the aisle in in Washington. And I, gosh, um, I I, I still have my reservations as to how effective that could be. In a perfect world, Mm. I think infrastructure would be just the first goal. I hearken back to the, the issue that the, the challenge that President Kennedy back, made back in 1961 to put a man on the moon in nine years and how that unleashed a lot of investment, uh, both from small companies, researchers, research um, uh, institutions, uh, universities, the MITs of the world, in addition to the large companies. And I think that a, a well implemented fiscal plan should be focused on helping to, to reestablish our middle class, which has been, I think, de- uh, decimated. We have the haves and the have-nots, in, and we see that in a lot of uh, wage and, and labor statistics. Um, but to take it one step further, which Richard Duncan has so aptly uh, referenced, and in, 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 I don't know about others, but uh, I reference in my book, we're spending a trillion dollars a year. In fact, we made news on... September 30th of this year, that for the past fiscal year, we added $1.4 trillion to our debt, taking it up to $19.6 trillion. And you think, what did we get for that $1.4 trillion that we spent over the last year? Why not spend that $1 or $2 trillion on a really meaningful program, like focusing on, and this is where the politicians would have to guide the country, focusing on being the world's leader in nanotechnology or biotechnology or uh, uh, some other groundbreaking technology for the betterment of, of our country and mankind in general, and really unleashing those entrepreneurial and animal spirits that could cut across all social strata. That's a Herculean task because now, uh, as you well know, there's going to be some special interest that's going to want to voice their considerable displeasure. If it's battery technology, mm-hmm. it's going to be maybe some type of um, oil or, uh, right, or right, energy right. firm, things of that nature. So there are the easy way out is infrastructure, which is desperately needed. Right. Boy, wouldn't it be groundbreaking if we had the political foresight to put out that Kennedy-like challenge and spend one or two trillion dollars in a very meaningful way?
1: Well, I would say that uh, regardless of uh, what's going on in Washington, uh, after November 4th, there's going to be some kind of consensus that occurs. I mean, it's, uh, it's likely that Hillary Clinton will get elected. Uh, Hillary Clinton will be besieged by the left, the Bernie Bernie faction of that party, and and she'll be driven to fulfill a promise of infrastructure building. And she can start doing that on a fairly significant scale without making it a major theme, like solar or whatever. But if that happens, uh, fellows like yourself are going to be immediately impacted with the interest rate implications of that jolt, even if it's not a huge jolt. So after the election, you may be walking into an interest rate rise, even though you know that if it happens, it's going to put a lot of people out of business. They can't pay off their credit card debt. They'll never be able to pay. So it's a very dangerous situation, and and we're going to see the cross-currents. And you, as an investment advisor, in the next two months are going to have to make a Herculean judgment as to what to do with your clients what will you do
2: a Herculean judgment also paying very careful attention to that expected mm-hmm. ra- rise in interest rates there's been many famous prognosticator over the last several years yeah, yeah. forecasting the increase in interest rates yeah. in a I'm still reminded, and I check these daily. Mm. The 10 year German uh, Bund, near 2%, was down as low as almost a negative 20 yeah. basis points. The uh, Japanese 10 year JGBs, been negative. They eked up into the positive, maybe one or two basis points, back down negative. Um, it, 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 the uh, uh, UK GILTs were down to 80 basis points. The point is, is that globally, there we've been fighting negative interest rates. You had 20, 25% of global bonds in negative interest rate right, territory. Right. No, that's, a... that's diminished, but that still tells me that perhaps there's gonna be resistance if the, ten, the U.S. 10 year, which is right around, I think 1.74 at this particular time, moving up to 1.819, crossing that 2% barrier, because we'll be looking at other uh, global rates and will that help, uh, will that make these U.S. treasuries look that much more attractive mm. and, and attract a lot of uh, attention? So I'm not so sure, uh, Andy, that we're going to see this significant move, potential, and your, and your, your thought process
1: is spot on. Well, I'm so going gonna, gonna, gonna gonna to argue that, to uh, take that uh, gonna, I'm going to argue that the electorates all over the world, Europe and the U.S. particularly are, are howling for relief on middle and lower class incomes. And the only way that can be done is by an infrastructure spend, uh, you know, spending all across Europe and the United States. Because that's the only way they're going to be able to change that. If not, you're going to get continual movements to the right, as you see in Europe, as you see in the United States. The the Trump phenomenon is essentially a move to the right on frustration. So let's assume at some point in time, they can't continue to leave the status quo, low interest rates, even though if they raise them, all all, all hell will break loose on that sense. But they're gonna have to move on the infrastructure for job relief in that sense. And you have to watch very closely which way that goes, because if it does move to a concerted infrastructure movement around the world to relieve the job pressures, then you will be faced with probably a movement on interest rates no matter what they do in the QEs. And uh, and therefore your clients' portfolios as a group are in uh, in harm's way. How do you handle that?
2: Well, you, you handle that by being nimble, as I okay. mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, i i typically don't buy the individual bonds uh okay. and have that traditional bond ladder as i did back in the okay. 90s when you had six seven percent bond ladders um so there are ways of 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 having a gosh and, and, and we as investment advisors hate to have that short-term focus but if you do see the trend you do need to uh, uh to position your clients appropriately for that trend and that would be reducing your exposure to fixed income, okay. perhaps moving more into the dividend-focused uh, infrastructure benefiting stocks. But
1: that is not as great a concern, I think. Um, uh, well, the stock it, market, just, if the interest rates go up, we know uh, the stock market has been a big driver of the, of, uh, uh, of the dropping of interest rates. They would probably get hurt quickly in the short term also. So you'd be stuck, an interest rate uh, kill here, would probably take out a, a lot of stock market equity in the short term. And then you're stuck with your clients. So uh, there's, all, there's always the other alternative, you can put them in real estate. What do you think about that? Real estate, well, real estate think- REITs and so forth as, a, as kind of a, a side move away from the sort of Damocles on interest rates. Well, I would agree, Andrew, I, I do uh,
2: uh, favor real estate in appropriate position uh, uh, appropriate allocation for many client portfolios there's different ways of buying okay. real estate type of investments um for the appropriate client outside of the assets that i manage we frequently discuss the purchase of an investment property perhaps you know a a uh, rental property yeah. at the shore or uh, a a apartment uh um, unit that they would uh, use as diversification in, in, in a well-diversified portfolio. Very appropriate in many respects. Okay. For those that don't have the inclination to want to own a piece of property, there are uh, investments that I one of them I re- reference in the, in the book, the uh, resource real estate. Um, I favor apartment complexes if I'm going to be right, investing client that. assets. I love cash flow. Um, and I think the demographics lend themselves to a long-term favorability for the apartment complex uh, uh, dynamic, so the with, the with the demographics favoring that and with a nice strong cash flow, um, that area of okay. real estate is very attractive to me. But again, in a in
1: appropriate okay. uh, a- allocation. What about your viewpoint of uh, diversifying overseas countries overseas? To try to uh, who don't have that Fed uh, drip into their into our markets, other countries don't have the QEs quite as potent as we are, and they may be more susceptible to, to traditional analysis. Do you personally or with your clients move to other countries as kind of an offset to the difficulty in reading the QE strategy of the United States? Is that a viable option for people who are investing to? Look for other countries, perhaps Canada, uh, perhaps Australia, uh, countries, uh, perhaps Latin America. I don't know. What do you? Uh, how do you approach that? If or do you?
2: I, I do. I consider it. I am very underweight uh, international. Okay. Um, have very little exposure to emerging markets. Okay. Um, they don't fit typically my client profile of a more stable, dividend-focused uh, uh, portfolio. Um, as you're speaking, i reminded that the top 50 central banks globally since the Great Recession have actually decreased interest rates over 650 times. Yeah. On average, once every three trading days, there's been a reduction in a rate in some central bank around the world. It's mind-boggling. What that tells me is that Aside from the big four, big five central banks, there are other central banks that are certainly influencing their particular markets. Certainly a lot more for me to try to to follow uh, on a a frequent basis. So if I do uh, look um, overseas, Canada, Australia, uh, Europe, um, it's in a very conservative and small measured aspect. And I want that dividend. Um, And I, I want I want the. You know the the uh, large company dividend style investments. I'm not going to get real aggressive personally for the majority of my client assets. Okay,
1: okay. Then let's going back to the the Fed itself. I mean, you you you've kind of do- documented the incredible power and the amount of money they they've created. Uh, how do you see the Fed as an actor in the next five years? They're going to continue to do this, or they basically run out of gas? And from your from your perspective, looking at your clients' portfolios, how, how potent do you think the Fed will be in the next five years in terms of your investor base? Um, I really like to study
2: that the Japanese central bank has, because they started many years yeah, before yeah. Okay, we did. And they're almost five or ten years ahead of us. Right. And uh, I'm thinking, gosh, the Fed is certainly going to remain engaged. There's probably going to be some type of attempts to to have more political control or influence on the Fed, which Mm. they will resist strongly. Mm. And I don't feel that the Fed will ever think they're going to be out of bullets. And we saw Mm. just last week where uh, chairwoman Yellen uh, did not discount the ability of the Federal Reserve System in the United States to buy equities with Mm -hmm. Fed dollars. That is, that was a significant statement, in my opinion. Uh, Harking back, and I mentioned this briefly in my book about the Plunge Protection Team, which was established, as best I know, after um, the 87 crash or downturn, Mm -hmm. uh, where Reagan said, gosh, we need to have something to prevent that or help prevent that in the future. Two years later, the PPT, the plant Protection Team, was enacted. A, a hard to get verification, and here, Chair um, uh, Yellen, uh, just a week or two ago, says, "Yes, we would entertain. We would not discount the ability of the Fed to buy stocks." Which, gosh, if that happens, unfortunately, you want to you want to allocate very well to risk assets and to stocks okay. if the if the, if you do have the Fed behind you you know, buying stocks. So they have a lot of opportunities um, to, to get creative with their their, their mm-hmm. theoretical printing press.
1: Okay, now with the, one of the benefits of quantitative easing around the world is that a lot of it now is directed at retiring and buying government debt. So you're gonna start seeing a reduction in debt. And at low interest rates, it's a perfect storm for fiscal policy To step up, in other words, the 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 retiring of government debt now uh, with the latest few QEs has been significant, and they're doing it around the world. So that if you are plotting all of this, you could you could almost hazard a guess that fiscal policy, especially after the November election, will probably kick in. If that kicks in, of course, the government, you know, will like like to kick it, you know, like to start the infrastructure with a low interest rate environment but I'm betting that everyone will jump and that the interest rates will, will jump up because more people will be put back to work at least in the short run. So that you be, have to be really ready, I think, to make the moves to protect your clients portfolios from a sudden interest rate drop, drop. even though it's clear that the pressure is downward. And if you looked at the Japanese experience by itself, it's downward for a lot longer than ours has been downward. But the United States is the key nation in keeping the system together. So that the United States can't afford to beat Japan. It would, uh, it would do everything in its power uh, to, 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 to move things forward. And the Japanese have an aging workforce. They don't have to keep that workforce working. The United States and Europe have a relatively young workforce that's not working. So that I would argue and I don't know if you would argue against me here that you're going to be facing with some modest upticks in interest rates foreshadowed by infrastructure spending uh, probably in coordination in Europe and the United States, just the benefit of, that, I, that I have, which means that your portfolios will, will come under significant adjustment. Any comments on that?
2: The U.S. is in a very envious position of having, as I referenced, King dollar. We have the world's reserve currency. And because, as I alluded to earlier, the world is flat, uh, allows inflation to remain very, very tame. And I would argue, and I did mention this in the book, that the Fed is probably concerned in some degree about deflation. Uh, They would like to see that proverbial Mm 2% target. Um, and that gives politicians and the physical policy measures comfort that they can use the strength okay. of the US dollar. They can use the fact that inflation is tame right now to embark on this aggressive fiscal policy mm-hmm. while we have that window to do so. And yes, you aptly um, uh, reference interest rates going up and the, the potential for them to be significant. We're going to keep an eye on that. Okay. I don't think we have much of a choice though, Andrew, That's true. with the, with the monetary policy diminishing, uh, and the fed getting creative and, and getting involved with corporate bonds and maybe purchasing stocks and other alliterations. Um, we're going to have to encourage this fiscal policy right. and do it while we still have this okay. proverbial window open.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.